Pitch Podcast for Friday, August 10th, 2012. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaper. And we're here to talk about building apps that run everywhere. This week, we rag on cross-origin resource <laughs> I defend PHP as a REST framework language. And Kelly open sources oranges. Then we go off into the weeds and talk about SMS for dogs, digital pills, and trusting your eyesight to a computer. Please stand by. The Niche Podcast is next. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. How are you this morning? Pretty good. Absolutely gorgeous day here. Oh, yeah. I, I haven't even looked outside here yet. <laughs> One of those days? Yeah. Yeah, it's very much one of those days. I just just poured myself a a, a coffee big gulp. (laughs) Iced? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I'm totally addicted to that iced coffee now. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It's good stuff. It is. (laughs) Nope, I'm back on regular, but I have two cups because they're small. So just in case I run low. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've got. So this is like a. I'm I'm not kidding. It's like a 32 ounce cup. <laughs> You're gonna be uh, grinding your teeth by this afternoon. I'll just be like twitching and. Kind of <laughs> yep. So actually, Erica's got a bunch of a wide assortment of. Um, these sort of like big plastic screw-on insulated uh, uh, coffee cups that she puts her iced coffee in, which I find utterly hilarious because she didn't drink coffee at all before she met me. Yeah. And now she's like uh, drinking probably 20 ounces a day. <laughs> drinking it all until I discovered the uh, the Kenyan blend. <laughs> oh, really? I'm, I'm, I'm a total coffee snob, apparently. <laughs> That's why it's funny because I never understood um, wine, people that liked wine, because I had only ever tasted crappy wine. I'm like, this stuff's terrible, you know, in college or whatever. Like, well, if it comes in a gallon jug for $4, what do you expect? I used to make wine. You used to make it? Not like in huge amounts, but just a, just a, as kind of a kind of a hobby, he would make make some every year wow probably six or seven years nice how was it good i mean you know i didn't have a lot to compare it to because at the time i was drinking it i was you know 15 maybe but (laughs) the truth comes out he was now retired from his job at the police department (laughs) (laughs) well at least you weren't old enough to drive that's true, and it's not like I was drinking more than I don't know, maybe a couple ounces to just and like <laughs> and then he would let me taste it. So secrets revealed. Uh, so let's see. I, it sounds like from our previous conversations over IM that you've got a bug report this week. Yeah, I had a really interesting drink. Uh, I'm, I'm picking <laughs> picking up all your habits. I had an interesting sort of bug with um turned out to be a bug in in rack mm. yeah so rack being i mean the the overall context was a uh, sinatra api yeah. right uh, we're we're working on a sinatra api and the guys developing the front end one of the front end clients was running into an issue that whenever they would make um ajax requests they would get 403 errors mm-hmm. and it it was uh, I know you and I both tested the API somewhat extensively, and I did a lot of automated testing on it, and, and you and I both sat down and hammered at it for a while um, with various tools and couldn't reproduce the problem. So we got to got to digging around, and, um, oh, they had... See, well... At first, when we first designed the API, we weren't weren't sure yet whether they were going inter- to interact with directly with JavaScript or whether the application they were building was going to go through some kind of proxy. Mm, right. 
or anything like that. So you know, it wasn't doing kind of a JSON JSONP response. It was just just returning straight JSON. Right. They had set their browser. I guess I guess they set it in the browser to be a little to be more lax and allow the you know the, the cross origin um, response there, which I. I didn't even know you could do that at the browser level. I didn't know that either. And in fact, I want to loop back with them. And, and uh, if I can't find that in preferences somewhere, you know, go back and find out what browser they were using and how they yeah. did that. Yeah. And um, so so then I thought, well, if they're, they're going to do that anyway, you know, maybe maybe it's still maybe it's still a problem with the cross origin policy. So I went in and I added cores headers to nginx to the had, had nginx add the course headers to to the output because it's it's a sinatra app that runs uh behind an nginx proxy via fusion passenger mm -hmm. so question there so you, you added that at the web server level right and could you could you just out of curiosity could you have added it at the application layer yeah yeah you could have i could have added it at the application level and doing it like that will Will allow they're doing it like that would allow me to to pass the header only on certain requests if I wanted to. So it'd be a great way to open up just parts of the API. Yeah, that's why I asked. Yep, and I also it'd also be interesting to people who don't have control over their web server configuration, which sometimes happens in the in the like a shared host environment. Yeah, and and actually, there's a Ruby gem for for managing the cores, if you if you need sort of a more granular type of control over it, which I'm, I'm not using, but I, I saw it in my, in my process of re researching all this. Gotcha. And so I did that and thinking, thinking, hoping that would solve their problem and it didn't. And then the next night I, I did some, some, some work on the API, just kind of implementing some, some other features and doing some other bug fixes and what have you. Mm -hmm. And, after that, after I did that, they ran into a problem where it wasn't working at all, even with the proxy they'd been using. So I thought, well, I'll go in and, and I'll I'll test it, because you know I probably still had a bug in the code somewhere that had slipped into into the into the test environment from from my local development server. Right. And in the process of debugging that, I was finally able to reproduce the problem they were having with the the four hundred three authentication or the, the 403 errors oh cool uh, yeah i was able to see being able to see that and actually actually read some of the debug output from from the route from the headers that were coming back and what have you uh. that i was it was still i was still getting the cores header so so that you know looked like that was working like it should mm -hmm. so I started digging around in um in config files for for other problems, and you know, first I checked the nginx configuration, which seemed fine, and they did. Uh, so then I did some googling, and for a while I thought it might have been a, a passenger problem because I came across a bug that was similar to this and had to do with uh, sort of worker processes kind of dying off in passenger mm. uh, when it was installed via RVM which ours is, but it turned out it was for an older version of Passenger. The bugs have been fixed, and I, you know, I had set up some monitoring scripts to kind of watch watch the processes on the server as requests were coming in and uh, ruled that out pretty quickly. Wow, that's pretty esoteric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so eventually, yeah, I just, I really just kind of lucked into finding the problem because... At that point, I was probably like six or eight pages deep in the Google results. And I mean, you know, with Google, if it's not on the first two pages, you're probably not going to find it. Yeah, isn't that crazy? So yeah. that was some tenacious Googling on your part. Just are desperate, one of the two. <laughs> because, um, you know, and I couldn't, couldn't solve the problem until I was, or I couldn't solve the other login problems we were having until I was, you know, solve this one which I had now managed to, to cause everywhere. And <laughs> it turns out I finally found a link to to an, an open issue on GitHub that was this exact problem. And it turns out that there's a bug in Rack. And it's in it's uh, in the protection library that protects against um, XSS 
attacks. Yeah. And there's a bug in there that causes it to return 403 errors when the content you're sending back is of the, of the MIME type of application JSON. Really? And it was, it's funny because, I mean, I'm, we're not, it's not like I've specifically enabled, uh, you know, the CSRF tokens or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And apparently that, that only happens when you're dealing with, um, cores, sending cores headers. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, the, the developers are aware of it. And from what I gather, they're working on a fix, but in a me- in the meantime, they posted a little, little workaround for it, which is basically just to, just to disable it for that particular content type, which is fine because if you're, if your uh, you know your your API is set to only only accept certain types of content and only return certain types of content, and you you want content from outside sources anyway, you know XSS protection doesn't really make a lot of sense. Right. So you know you can you can disable it without really sacrificing anything there as far as security concerns. Yeah, so, I mean the whole point is to let other people access it, so. So even though I hadn't specifically turned on the XSS protection, going in and explicitly disabling it did the trick and, and fixed the problem. Wow. So explicitly saying don't use it. It's, it's just like so weird to me. Uh, I mean, first of all, it's amazing how complicated that that sounds and is because there's so many... So many um, moving parts there i mean you just listed off like five or six different technologies different layers of the stack that all interact to cause this problem and and it's it's you know it's fairly deep stuff and the thing that drives me nuts about it is is um the whole cross domain restriction and the and cores seems so but I just never understood the point of any of that, um, and and I've even I've even chatted with people who are like related to the W3C, and no one can explain it to me. So I don't know if I'm just thick, or there was a reason for it at one time that doesn't exist anymore. But it all sounds stupid to me. Yeah, I th- I think it's you know at first I was thinking well it's to prevent malicious code from being run in your browser. Yeah, but to me that yes, and that I think that is I think that is the case, but right. that should be up to the user to determine whether or not they want that code to be ran. Or the or the application or the domain that's hosting the application, not the target of the of the Ajax calls. Yeah, um actually that makes a little more sense to me now after doing some reading during the process of that that bug hunting. Okay. In that instance, it's it's more about uh, I guess preventing session hijacking. Okay, well, all right. Maybe I don't understand the mechanics of session hijacking. I think I do, but what can you explain that? Um, I guess not. My understanding of it isn't probably isn't that great either. But the you know, the idea is that. If you have active, if you're if you're interfacing with a service that you're you're creating a user a, a user session where you have session data stored in your browser for that you know, for that service, then then you could have you know you could have another uh, cores re, you know cores request coming in from from other applications or other servers or what have you that then maybe I guess kind of act in a way to sort of hijack that session data. And then since everything's wide open, are able to make requests to the, to the API on, I guess, on your behalf. I don't know. I don't, I don't entirely understand it. It just, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Like, so, so here's my understanding of it is that let's say you go to jonathanstark.com and I've got, and uh, I don't do this, but let's say I had like uh, ads embedded in there using like third-party JavaScript. 
So now I've got jonathanstark.com, I've got all my HTML, my CSS, my JavaScript, and then I'm including JavaScript from somebody else's server, somebody else's domain. And that's allowed. You know, that's like a normal thing that the web always do, did. There's no cross-domain problem there because they just use a script tag and pointed it at AdMob server, something like that. So since JavaScript, if JavaScript is running in a page, it has access to everything in the page, regardless of the origin. And and it, frankly, if I was going to put some security somewhere, it would be there, which sure. is to say that if if uh, if a JavaScript is included from another domain, then uh, something from the primary domain would have to grant it certain privileges, like it can or can't see cookies or whatever. Because not only is it going to have access to everything on the page, it's going to have access to cookies, it's going to have access to local store. Yeah, everything. So so it's 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 basically got root level permissions for whatever's going on in the user's browser. So that's bad, but that would be a very complicated thing to fix. So I understand that. So fine. So, so if you include somebody else's code in your page, you're basically uh, trusting them implicitly with your user's information. All right. So, but that's the way the web works and that's the way it's been. So the, the issue I suppose is if somebody hacks in this example AdMob server and they put malicious code uh, into the source page of the URL that I'm including, then it could uh, get access to those cookies, just like we just said, uh, including session cookies, and send them to evil.org and uh, store those session uh, the session IDs or the session tokens, and then use them uh, on from any browser by just sending in that session cookie of whoever's on my website and they'd be able to access that person's data as if they had logged in as them. It wouldn't, wouldn't have to be an Ajax request. Uh, right. I mean, they could, they could send it. Well, that's true. Yeah. I mean, that's an even better point. You know, they could just, uh, insert, uh, you know, create a, an image tag and send it with a get request. Yeah. So, so if I was going to, implement or think about implementing security to prevent that which is i mean that is the definition of a cross-site scripting attack if i'm not mistaken that's what it is i would say that jonathanstark.com should be able to whitelist outgoing requests from the browser so if if you know whatever it is whether it's a manifest file or it's something i said in the javascript of the of the parent page um, you know, a JavaScript that's included from the domain that the browser is pointed at. And, and there's already security kind of like this uh, with iframes, for example. Um, or when you open up a window with JavaScript, you know, JavaScript can only access windows that have been opened. It can only access uh, windows that it opened. It can't access any other windows or tabs. So the concept I, in my mind, it should have been that there'd be some kind of manifest file hosted at jonathanstark.com that says that any any request any um, outgoing requests from this domain uh, or, or outgoing requests from jonathanstark.com can only go to uh, admob can only go to google.com for google analytics and can only go to whatever i whitelist like two or three domains maybe as a particular bucket on s3 where i'm holding images and i whitelist those couple of things and then if somebody does hack AdMob server and they, they include an, uh, an image tag that points at evil.org, it just doesn't go. It doesn't work. Like, to me, that is the way to do it. And because the way that Course is implemented, if I'm probably mistaken, and I would love it if somebody would hit me up on Twitter and explain this to me if I'm wrong. But my understanding is that Course doesn't do anything because then evil.org just would set up you know, course headers. I'm like, okay, accept requests from jonathanstark.com if you get anything. It, it doesn't make any sense. It, it does nothing. It does nothing for XSS. Well, I, I don't understand it. Um, see, when you, see, see, I thought I understood how it protected against it, but then when you go through and explaining all that, yeah, you're right, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, so, yeah, I would, I would love to would love to hear how that's supposed to work but to me to me the protocol seems to be implemented backwards right it's backwards but it, it does solve the problem 
in terms of it does al allow JavaScripters to do what they want to do without having to set up a proxy, but yeah. it doesn't. So I guess in that sense, it's good, but it's, but it's backwards, like you said. In terms of it's, it's protecting, protecting your API, I guess. Yes. And that's, and when I've had conversations about it in the past, people will say exactly that, which is, you know, you don't want people, you know, just like, uh, it, it's supposed to prevent people from accessing your API that you don't want access to it, but it doesn't do that. Right. Well, then your API should have an authentication mechanism if you want to restrict access to it. Right. It doesn't, I mean, still your web server has to handle the denial, but it's it still, it doesn't make any sense because there's like a thousand other ways you can access the API that aren't through JavaScript in the browser. And it's not course. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but Coors does nothing about that. It's it's a security policy implemented for Ajax. Yeah, I guess, I guess the idea is that, say you have, you you're accessing the API via Ajax, then I guess the idea is to prevent some other script that may be running on the site from getting that information and then accessing your API through through the data contained on that site but then it doesn't but it, that but if the if the if in the example before if the ad mob code goes bad but it's hosted from jonathanstark.com the the request is going to originate from jonathanstark.com it's not going to know that it came from um the the included javascript yeah i'm it makes no sense kind of understand the motivation behind it but i think the implementation is just it it doesn't solve the problem they're trying to solve. Yeah, I mean, someone pointed out to me. So this might be, uh, it might be that my understanding of cores is is too low. It's definitely not a great understanding, but it could be that it's another way to um, to basically block traffic to to things other than scripts and APIs via Ajax. Like maybe you can configure cores to only allow access to, I don't know, like hot link to your images from a, from certain domains. Is that, I mean, that would, that would kind of make sense to me. It's totally unrelated to XSS, but if you could set up your web server to only accept traffic for like images from your domains, then that, that makes sense. That's useful. Because yeah. people can't hotlink to you, but I don't think it does that. There are well, there are other cores headers besides just the one I'm sending, and because right now I'm just kind of opening it up to everything, and whether we lock it down later or not, it depends on the needs of the application. But just for the purposes of testing right now, I just just open it up to everything. But there are um, you can you can restrict by by ip i see i don't know i'm having a really hard time remembering right now because i was debugging this at like four o'clock in the morning yeah and, and you're focused on fixing it not learning cores all things about restricting by ip address and restricting by request type mm -hmm. remember if that was specifically a part of cores or if that was part of the ruby code yeah that that was dealing with the the bugs in cores in in rack and, and what have you so I, I can't remember, and actually I think it might have been, thinking about it now, I think it might have been Nginx configuration, where you could configure Nginx to send specific types of course headers on specific types of requests and you know, based on IP address and what have you. And when, I guess when you combine the two that way, it gets a little more useful. Yeah, I could see that. Like if you were, if, if course was created... So the thing is, I don't I don't know what the reason Cores was created was. I heard about Cores as a solution uh, to uh, to get around same domain restriction for JavaScript, but maybe it has maybe that's just a, a, an after a, an unwanted side effect or an accidental side effect. If the point of it is to really to to prevent things like hotlinking to images or or that sort of thing, then that's kind of cool and that's definitely useful. I can, so I can see that. Um, because that would give you a way to essentially 
um, manage your bandwidth and limit your limit your bandwidth without requiring people who genuinely are accessing it from the proper place to uh, have to log in because if you just put like I mean previously you to limit access to an image you'd have to like put HTTP or whatever uh, uh, simple authentication or something in front of it which would make everyone have to log in which you wouldn't want so in other words if you came to jonathanstark.com and I had a bunch of images embedded on there you'd have to log in to see them which doesn't make any sense but if I want those images to be displayed on jonathanstark.com with no login, but I don't want someone from evil.org to hotlink to one of my images, um, which actually happens to me all the time because like an idiot, I used, a, uh, I used an image from my website, a URL to an image from my website in one of my books. And <laughs> so now I get these, I get like server traffic from all over the planet from people who are using the example code uh, to like this, this like, you know, 10 kilobyte logo image I have on my site but anyway it, it, and I could set up theoretically if this is what how course works and is what it's for I could set up course to say only accept requests from a page that's hosted at jonathanstark.com and it would it would stop serving to all those other places yeah but there again that only works for Ajax requests well, that's what I'm saying. If it, if it's if it's web server wide and not just for Ajax requests, if the browser respects it in general, then that would be pretty cool. Well, you can you can stop image hot linking uh, with HD access. Oh yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, okay, course is dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. I don't get it. I guess maybe because HT access is specific to Apache and they wanted this to be something that was a more generic standard. I, I don't know. It, um, it's crazy. It, it feels, uh, same origin policy feels half-baked. Mm. I'm sure someone out there understands this and can explain it to us and will embarrass, embarrass us both horribly, but, uh, but I, I just feels backwards and useless. And uh, so there you have it. Backwards and useless. <laughs> yeah. So okay, but you know, it, you know, it, 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 whether or not it's a side effect, um, and whether or not it's backwards, it does lift the restriction. Yeah. Uh, so, I guess there's, I guess I'm glad it exists. Yeah. Either, either way, we, <laughs> we, we fixed the restriction. We lifted the restriction, and I found and fixed the bug. And actually, it's it's a good thing I did find and fix the bug because I feel like that's gonna that would have bitten us on a couple of other projects we've got going too. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yep. So speaking of uh, of uh, Ruby and Sinatra and Nginx and all those fun things, I had a uh, a client from years ago contact me about. Um, putting together just a quick proof of concept mobile web app. Mm-hmm. And I was like, cool, this will be my chance to have like an actual project where, you know, I just, I give them a, a, a fixed bid. I always do fixed bids for stuff like that. And it's just a teeny weeny project. And, and I was like, great, I can use this as, uh, as my, um, you know, my inaugural project where I actually do, configure nginx and and do my first sinatra thing i mean obviously i've got access to all that awesome code you've written for all these apis and finally i'm like okay now i can try and get it there and not because i'm clueless like as much as we talk about it i haven't coded one bit of that stuff and so i wanted to go take an example of one of the other ones set it up configure it maybe ask you a couple questions here and there so i I map the whole thing out for him and i'm like oh it's going to be uh it's going to be you know hosted on EC2, I'm going to use Sinatra, I'm going to use Nginx, we're going to use RDS, and he goes, and he's like, oh, that all sounds great, but could you do it in PHP, because our internal guy hates Ruby, <laughs> and I was like, son of a bitch, <laughs> so, like, totally, like, totally approved the whole thing, and then he was like, oh, but could you do it in PHP with uh, Apache and MySQL, my I was like, ugh, yes, you you can't do a proper API in PHP. That's not true. You don't have support for all the rest verbs. Sure you do. Oh, you just have get and post. 
Well, it, but in the no, in the super global, I haven't done it yet. But in the super global array, you do have you just they just don't have built in. Uh, 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 I want to say super arrays, but that sounds wrong now. But get and post arrays, but you still have access to the full headers and everything. True. Yeah. Request message. Yeah. So you know, so I I'm actually using a framework called Slim, which does you know I I don't know how it's doing under the hood. I can look and see, but presumably it's taking the raw headers and just routing based on whatever the whatever the incoming headers was. It agreed that it's not baked into PHP. Like PHP doesn't make it easy, but you know. We're not using raw Ruby either. We're using a framework, so I'm going to use a framework here as well. Yeah, that's that's a good point. That's a good point. It's you know, it's a we're a, a little more lifting in PHP. But. Yes, yes, I I will admit that. So that'll be uh, that'll be um, probably take a couple hours to crank that out. It'll be interesting. It's a fun little uh, fun little mobile app. It needs to have like offline support because these guys are going. Uh, you know, it's like you know. Uh, uh, sort of workmen going around to different um, locations throughout the day to do work at, at vendor, their client sites, and they need to check in and check out, and they might be offline, they might be online, but it's really just a, you know, press a button, grab my geolocation, and and then press a button again to check out of that geolocation. Very, very simple, um, you know, other than the having to store stuff offline that's maybe a little bit a little bit more complicated, but pretty straightforward application. And I was like, "Sweet, I can finally I've finally got a very simple proof of concept application that I can cut my teeth on Sinatra." Yeah, I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> oh well, well I'll, I'll know Slim by the end of the week, so we can talk about that and compare and contrast. Yeah, that actually may be interesting discussion next week. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that you touched on um, when we were talking about the uh, the uh, the in the bug report was um, testing the API directly, and I, I think it's worth mentioning this Mac app that uh, is called HTTP Client, available in the Mac App Store. We'll link to it, and it's not. I mean, it's totally simple little Mac application. In fact, it even crashed on me once. I, I, I wouldn't say it's the best thing ever but uh it's certainly dead simple which i love and you can just put in a url select a method and um you know put in any headers that you want and just like bang against an api really 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 simple um so if people are if, if people are testing their api at the command line you might want to i think it was two dollars or something you might want to download this app and have a graphical interface for it, which I always find, uh, uh, I don't always find easier, but in this case, I, I think it is. Yeah, curl, curl is not difficult, but it's kind of, when you have to make a lot of requests with curl, it's kind of a pain to go in and, and edit all of the, the, um, the arguments. Yeah, so, yeah, I always, I always end up like typing it up in TextMate and then pasting it into the terminal and it's just a little clunky. Yeah, so this just kind of, kind of, kind of like just a graphical interface for curl. Right. Yeah. It's super easy, but you know, I mean, it's, I mean, it's super. There's not, there's practically nothing to it, but it's. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure I will be using it a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I found it a while ago and use it quite a bit. And actually, I just recently reinstalled it. Um, I had it off, took it off the computer for a while and just recently reinstalled it and i don't know the the app has been around for a long time so maybe maybe the problems you had with it crashing your stability might be related to mountain lion they may they you know they may have not pushed an update since mountain lion release yeah that's highly likely mountain lion i mean for google chrome's crashing on my on mountain lion so i can hardly blame the http client developer you couldn't watch my video about about how uh, how i felt after fixing that bug no it's which we will if we have to talk about that but the the for some reason uh a, almost every time i go to youtube the entire computer locks up and i have to reboot like hard reboot flash player i guess i guess i don't know I have no idea i mean i could go check the server logs but i mean in the uh uh the console and see what's going on but i should probably do that actually 
um, but it's just like an instantaneous like like crash so so yeah um the but the video what's the name of the video um it's a it's a little quote from i think last season's doctor who and we can we can link to it in the show notes i guess but yeah. uh, <clears throat> the quote is it's something like i'm being extremely clever up here and there's no one around there's no one to stand around looking impressed <laughs> <laughs> exactly a really obscure bug at four o'clock in the morning you're like you're like downstairs going woohoo yeah everyone's like go back to bed <laughs> yeah i totally know that feeling Bad about it <laughs> yeah it gets to the end of a day of like some totally writing some primo elegant javascript you're like erica check this out yawn <laughs> no one cares does it work it works yeah, that, oh, that's and that's what I was saying on IM. I was like, it's funny because I get the same feeling when I'm in that zone of coding and like come out the other side and there's you, you like got something you're really proud of. If mm -hmm. that whole process of going into that zone and 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 succeeding it feels exactly like composing music, and like there's this certain point in both creative activities where you know you're done. And you like, there's just like something inside you clicks and you're like, that's it, I'm done. And it doesn't happen very often. It's like the perfect golf shot. But the, the depressing thing about software is that, that no one really, very, very few people can actually uh, appreciate it. But with music, it, you know, virtually anybody can appreciate it because you like play them the tune and they're like, wow, that's awesome. <laughs> but with the code, it's like, you know, you show it, you show your like really cool interface and like, yeah, it works. Like, duh, why wouldn't it work? <laughs> yeah, but it's only 20 lines of code. Oh, great. <laughs> it's funny because Wyatt and I were talking, talking last night. Uh, we had bad night last night. Oh, really? It wasn't a bad movie. It was a really good movie. But, um, what was me, it? Uh, we watched Visioneers. I've never heard of it. Yeah, it's, um, it's a, it's a, I guess, kind of a very dark comedy, sort of. I don't know. It's, it's hard to describe, but I would, I would definitely, definitely recommend it. it. It probably only appeals to a certain, certain type of humor. But we both loved it. I think you'd like it. But um, anyway. <laughs> is it like sci-fi? I guess, I guess you could kind of call it sci-fi. Kind of like a, a near futurish sort of, slightly Orwellian type of society where. People kind of living and going through their their mundane existences, and 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 when they get too stressed out and, and emotionally pent up from these emotions that they've all learned to bottle and and, and not show them what have you, they just they they explode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's a it's a funny movie. Um, but anyway, after the movie, we were we were talking and. You know how you were you were talking about kind of getting in the zone and developing code and you know that that moment where everything just just feels right. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because the past couple of weeks I haven't had a, like a whole lot of work to do, and you know doing little bits here and there, but um, I haven't really had a period of time where I need to sit down and do a large chunk of code. Mm. And I actually found myself the other night sort of craving that experience of just like staying up all night and getting lost in the code. <laughs> yeah. I was by wanting to get a bunch of work done or had, you know, the, the goal, the goal for me at that point wasn't to, to finish something. It was to just completely lose myself in the code for a while because I had missed that experience. Yeah, isn't that a cool, that's interesting. So, yeah, there's, there's apparently, apparently I'm, I'm motivated by something more than a paycheck. So <laughs> shocker. Yeah. Now I know the feeling because I get the same way where it's like, like this, this little, uh, check-in app that I was talking about. I'm just like dying to code something. So I was like, yeah, I'll do that for you. You know, so I can like, and you just sit down and you're like, oh man. I can like concentrate on this. Yeah, yeah, and 
to me, there's something about staying up and, and pulling an all-nighter and doing it then, because, I don't know, something about the dark and the quiet and the code. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. It's always it's always best in an overnight thing. It's like the world is sleeping, and no one can bother you, and even, the, like, outside the house is quiet. Everything's quiet. Yeah, like, you, I don't know, like, you, you just, you, you feel kind of, you feel cool, because everything else, everyone else up you're working all night on this complicated problem and it's <laughs> i don't know it's it's hard to describe it's a but I, I feel like it's probably a feeling that um maybe only other developers can can relate to <laughs> yeah i i absolutely agree i know the feeling for sure it's, it's funny i i spend hours writing code during the day and you know i may get in the zone and enjoy what i'm doing but I, I it's I'm spending hours in the in the day writing code. I spend hours at night writing code, and I feel like I'm some I don't know like some some protagonist in an '80s hacker film or something. <laughs> yeah, you feel like Batman. You're like you're like saving the world from this one thing. <laughs> it's you against the you know I figured this bug out, and now I'm gonna put it on Stack Overflow and save you know thousands of people from having to do the same thing. I have rescued the other developers of the world. Yeah, contributed to the wealth of human knowledge. <laughs> so. Yeah, so I I had a, I open sourced another little thing. Oh, cool, what? Um, I did it a week ago, but I forgot to talk about it on last week's podcast. Um, I, I think I showed it to you, the, the oranges, ORNG.us. Oh, yeah, yeah, you did, yep. I open sourced a large part of that code. Cool. So, so oranges, it's it's o r n g dot u s, and anybody's welcome to use it. Um, it's kind of it's just a little a little personal project I did for for use by myself and and some friends. And I think my dad uses it. What have <laughs> it's a combination of a URL shortener, a file sharing tool, a a way to share markdown files, and a, a simple paste bin for some some web-based programming languages and um, the the file uploads are, are password protected on the site but they're they're not in the open source code and um, so I mean it's just a just a little tiny Ruby application but for anyone who's interested in one or more of those things there it is yeah it's sort of it sort of reminds me of cloud app but open source yeah, it sort of is with uh, well, I guess without any kind of desktop interface you know, way to interface with it, which would actually be actually be kind of fun to to build something. There you go. Yeah, it, I mean, it's basically right. It's like the web version of the cloud uh, cloud app, which is uh, uh, not free. <laughs> so, and I, everything everything about that I open sourced. Except for the custom, some custom CSS and a little bit of custom JavaScript and the the password protection on the file uploads, I kind of added after the fact just to just to my hosted copy, just because it's it's um, uploads to my S3 account, and you know I just wanted to to limit it to friends and family that wanted to use it. So. Yeah, you don't want people like hosting BitTorrent and movies on there. Exactly. Cool. Very cool. So yeah, check that out. Um, and you know, co-opt it, put it on your own server if you want. Pretty cool, very useful. So you remember last week when you asked me if there was really such thing as a GPS dog collar? So I've read today. Uh, I can I can beat that even better than GPS dog collar. There is a a device, and I I. We'll have to find the link to it that you can put on your dog that not only will tell you where the dog is, but will tell you uh, what noises the dog is making so that you can tell if, you know, if if the dog is like starts barking and hits the audio threshold, it will it will text you that your dog's barking so that someone's probably at the front door or whatever. And of course, this makes more sense for people who don't work at home like us who can hear our dogs barking. But, okay. uh, but yes, your dog can now text you. Huh. Yeah, I, um, 
As long as they don't get anything that starts interpreting brainwaves. <laughs> much as I love my dog, if I, he was ever able to communicate with human words, I would probably have to strangle him. <laughs> oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, food, my favorite thing. Oh boy, oh boy, tummy rub is my favorite thing. <laughs> yeah, that would really, that would really, uh, that would nuke your data plan, I think. Yeah. So in the in the same article, I also read that um, you can you can attach a collar to your sheep that will tell you if a wolf is approaching, because they it tracks their heart rate and and generally the apparently if you're into sheep, the only thing that uh, makes their heart race is if a wolf is approaching or some other you know imminent threat. So you can alert the shepherd. I didn't know shepherds had smartphones, but apparently they do. And the shepherd gets alerted that the uh, the flock of sheep is uh, scared sheepless and can go running out there and do something about it, I suppose. Yeah, I'm just that's um just com- completely new take on all of those all those Looney Tunes cartoons. <laughs> yeah, the wolf wearing the sheep coat. Warning for it. Oh man. So yeah, it's getting nuts. Actually, the article was. Uh, I'll link to the article. It touched on a bunch of crazy wireless um, realities without getting it, it and and grounded firmly in the reality, you know, of things that currently exist and are popular. A lot of them sort of sort of you know popular in niche areas. Um, or smaller, you know, not U.S. necessarily, but uh, like Finland was mentioned and, and Japan. Not that Japan's a niche area, but, um, you know, not worldwide stuff, but uh, but definitely crazy, crazy um, applications of wireless technology. And in fact, the point of the article was that by the end of the year, if everything stays on track, there will be more active cell phone connections, subscriptions, uh, than there are human beings on the planet, including babies and, you know, octogenarians. Wow. Yeah, so, like, I think the number is, like, 7.8 million, billion, 7.8 billion um, active mobile subscriptions, which is more than any other technology ever, uh, t- including TVs, radios. Uh, he even goes so far as to say that's more that's more active cell phone subscriptions in use than there are pens. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Yeah. I I now happen to own three cell phones, but I have a lot more ink pens. Yes, but he, his argument is that uh, you know I'm sure there are warehouses full of billions of pens, but he's talking about in use, and his argument is that there's only about I'm going to get the number wrong, but there's only something like. Uh, two billion literate adults so what would be the point of having a pen if you can't write uh read or write or if you're a baby or something so he's like it's it's not even close to the number of people who can use this who who are who are using cell phones which is when i read that that was one of the the, in the lead paragraph and i'm like come on it can't be more cell phones than pens you know, but then he does go on to kind of explain the numbers. And I think he's, I, I don't think he's just skewing the argument. The point is, uh, the point is well taken that uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's hitting the tipping point for sure. And a lot of those, uh, and he freely admits that, you know, a billion of those connections are machine to machine cellular connections, like, you know, the utility meter model. But uh, he's like, but there's still tons of growth available because there are lots of dogs and sheep out there that yeah. need to text us. <laughs> he even tells ones I had to I have to add this. He even says that he's like, oh you think you think it'll max out when we when all of the sheep and uh and dogs and people all are connected cellular and, and every person has four connections. I mean I even after purging myself of all of my uh un on relatively unused cell phone accounts, I still have personally my main phone, my, you know, my iPad has a data connection, 
I have uh, two MiFi's, which both have data connections, one for home and one for when we're camping, <laughs> embarrassingly enough. You know, so I've got four or five, uh, you know, just by myself. But he's like, even after all of those things are saturated, there, uh, there's this virtual hitchhiking game. In, there's like a motorcycle club in Japan that has this virtual, this app that you can create an avatar for yourself. And you send your little avatar on a hitchhiking trip. And, and the avatar will send you text updates as achievements are unlocked. So it's, wow. like, it's like off doing its thing in this virtual world. And it like reports back. So he's like, <laughs> and he's like, and this is all stuff that currently exists. So, you know, and he yeah. also puts, he also puts dollars against all these things. So it's like, it's like, uh, you know, the, the ringtone market or like, you know, 50 cent, you know, the rapper 50 cent making more money off of ringtones than he did off of his album. Um, yeah, it, he just goes on and on. Like the, the numbers are insane like there's so much um there's so much upside financial upside to getting into this you know massive billion person market that it's just going to keep going so super crazy crazy yeah did you did you see the the article about instacart i don't think so it's uh it's a subscription-based grocery service Nice. The Amazon Prime model, where you can you can subscribe to Instacart and and subscribe to I guess subscribe to the groceries you want and get them delivered uh, like next day or second day. Huh. Well, so, we we have a milkman that does that, so. I may I may actually look into it because you know, you know for me getting out and and, and going places. Yeah, is, it's a pain in the ass. I've got I've got Richard, but Richard works, and and I don't like to make him go out after work, and he has some problems driving at night and stuff. But we live we live in a rural rural area, and I can't see well enough to drive, so I I use Amazon Prime all the time. Mm-hmm. Having you know having something like that for for groceries would be kind of handy. Yeah, where I live, there's a uh, supermarket called Stop and Shop that I think is national. And they have a service called Peapod that does this, um, but I, I don't think it's—I I don't think you can do like an on-demand thing. I think you know they come to your neighborhood on Thursdays or whatever. Uh, I mean, I have subscription services for for a bunch of different things, like the like I get my razor blades from a subscription service. You know, uh, it's called Dollar Shave Club. You know, because you don't—you just want the stupid blades, and you always forget, and you run out of them. And uh, I, same thing. I have you ever heard of Man Packs? Yeah, it's like I have that too. It's like awesome. You get like fresh socks every couple of months. It's the best. <laughs> I never remember to buy that stuff. They need to make girly packs. Yeah, there, it's got to be one. There's got to be one out there. But well, who knows? There's an opportunity for someone. But so groceries, it does it. Uh, does it? It must be limited to like. I can't imagine that fresh produce is on the list, but I suppose it could be. I haven't looked at it too much. You know, I could I could see fresh produce in some areas hmm. where saturation that they could do same day delivery. But um, and and I guess I guess if you wanted to pay for um for the right type of shipping, anything's possible. Well, did you did you hear hear yesterday about the uh, the big Starbucks Square announcement? They're going to start uh, exclusively using Square as their payment processor. Oh wow! I didn't realize it was exclusive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they'll still, I mean, they'll still take credit cards and stuff, but through Square. Right. And, but the real, the, the, the like future is not using the credit card and like using the geofencing thing where by virtue of the fact that you're in the vicinity of a Starbucks, your face will show up on their cash register. So when you come up in line and order your Venti Pike's place, they just tap on your face, ask you what your name is, say Jonathan Stark and... You know, it's automatically charged to your online account. You never take your phone out of your pocket. You never take your wallet out. No credit cards, nothing. Yeah, they just they just know it's you, and and there you go. Yep, they know it's you, and the, compu- the what's critical is the computer knows it's you, and the computer can, uh, you know, charge your account. So, 
I mean, this is, I mean, it was, the technology was revolutionary when it came out. It was totally brilliant. Didn't see it coming at all. Uh, super clever. And the, and, and now that they've got such a, they're going to have such a huge footprint with Starbucks that you just know people are going to follow suit. Other, reta other retailers are going to follow suit. It's, I mean, you know, buy your stock in Square now. Yeah. I'm, I'm still trying to be able to pay my electric bill online. Really? Yeah, I can't do it. I went to went to their horrifically designed online bill pay interface the other day, and it said if you've not been here before, sign up for an account and provide all your you know you provide all of your information, the part of your account number, part of your social security number, just so they can verify your identity. And so I entered my email address and password and all that stuff, and it says okay. Uh, we created your account, but there was an error sending you the activation link, so your account's not active. Hmm. So I go, they say, they say, click here to resend the activation link. So I click, you know, click the link, and it says, okay, fill out your email address, and we'll send you another activation link. So I fill out my email address, and it says, oh, there's no email address for that in our system. <laughs> I think, well, maybe it didn't save my email address. So I go back and I go through the sign-up process again. And fill out the form again and, and, and click submit. And it says, oh, an account with that email address already exists. <laughs> ah. <laughs> call them and, I mean, you know, who wants to, who wants to call them, you know? <laughs> oh, man. And, you know, and it's just like, how does that happen? Yeah. Yeah, I saw one the other day. It was like a WTF mobile web thing where you navigate to a site on your phone and it says, oh, uh, click over to the desktop site to register. Yes. So you're like, all right, fine. And you click over to the desktop site and it redirects you to the mobile site. And it's like, click on the desktop site to register. <laughs> that's That's just, it's like they're just trying to like anger their mobile users. Yeah. Which, as we've established, are, you know, a large portion of which are sheep. So I guess it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, unbelievably frustrating. Cross-site sheep attacks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, you know, I, I just pictured a flock of sheep with anonymous masks on. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the new, for, new, the new term for it. They're trying to protect against herding. <laughs> We are everywhere. Oh my God! All right. Well, on that note, I I did have one other little awesome thing. Oh, cool! Uh, it should just take a minute, but I saw I I think I sent you the link to it, but it was a a pill that you could swallow that would then report back to a mobile app what drugs are in your system. Yes, yes, I did. I've been talking about that ever since. That's so awesome. It's awesomely crazy. And it was approved by the FDA. That's the big thing. Yeah, so we are we are now officially putting computers in our body. We're putting our bodies in computers, if you consider a car a computer, which I do, or a plane, which is definitely a computer. Uh, so as uh, Cory Doctorow says, we better damn well pay attention to what the government does when they're regulating computers <laughs> because they're, uh, they are in us and around us. Yeah, and I'm. Well, I started. Never mind. I, I started to say I'm gonna, gonna trust my eyesight to a computer next week. But actually, it's not. I will have it'll be my my doctor sitting back there, kind of aiming and aiming and pushing the trigger button. But <laughs> on a laser. Yeah. Well, I've been there. I mean, I I had LASIK, which I realize is not the same thing, but it is a, um, largely computer driven process. Yeah, and actually, speaking of computer-driven processes, um, back in June, the there is a part there they received FDA approval for part of the cataract surgery that I had um, will can now be done uh, computer-guided with lasers. Hmm. It's it's supposed to be faster, less traumatic, and um, would actually actually sort of actually prevent the problem that I'm having now. So. Oh, wow. 
is the problem I'm having now is that I've got some tissue sort of regrowing that shouldn't be there. And because, you know, is tissue that was removed with a scalpel and, you know, got some scar tissue forming around that shouldn't be there. And if that particular part of the procedure, which is the, um, the anterior capsulotomy, uh, <laughs> done with a laser then you know it's gonna it's gonna cauterize everything and you're not gonna get that tissue regrowth so it's gonna gonna reduce complications from the surgery wow it's it's apparently all all automated in the same way that that lasik is computer guided mm. wow that's crazy is that supposed to be like uh like a like a i mean like for me the procedure was like you know done that day you're like go in go out and you know, gave me a Valium, which was the best thing I ever took in my whole life. Uh, and then woke up late, you know, later that day, and I was basically fine. Yeah, this um, see this uh, yeah, he said it should be like a like a five minute procedure and completely painless. But, um, yeah, I was I was one I was worried at first that it might have to go do it under general anesthesia again because. Mm-hmm. Normally, normally cataract surgery is the same way. It's it's ten minutes. They give you a topical numbing drop, and you know, ten twenty minutes later, you're done. But in my case, since I have other eye conditions, they they did it under general anesthesia, and it took forty five minutes. But uh, so I was kind of worried that might be the case again. But he said he said no. The the laser acts, you know, perform does those things so quickly that that the, uh, the nystagmus that I have, which is the the involuntary eye movements. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't wouldn't be a problem. He could still kind of aim aim and fire and, and hit it. So, yeah, that's what they told me too. It was like I was like, what if they were like, okay, don't move your eye, and I was like, well, what if I move it? <laughs> you get like this, you know, it's not the kind of thing you have a hundred percent control over. That's my one of my biggest fears. They say don't move, and and I'm gonna move. Right, and he said, nah. He's like, he's like, just just don't move, and if you do move, it'll it'll catch up with you. Yeah, I have. I have really bad. They're they're involuntary eye movements. I I can't control them, and it probably leads to a lot of eye strain on my part. But um, yeah, it's it makes makes eye exams a lot of fun. Yeah. So doctors going look down, no down, no down, the no. Other, <laughs> the other down. The down. Yeah. It's like trying. <laughs> yeah. So we. So a lot worse when you start shining lights into my eye it just goes wherever it wants to and i have, have no control over it at all right so. yikes well good luck with that it sounds like fun <laughs> <laughs> the specific definition of fun i guess <laughs> it's like gonna be eye surgery number seven i'm not really looking forward to it no but, Pret- yeah. you know hopefully the last one though yeah, hopefully, and you know, four day weekend. There you go. I mean, they see, seem to be getting smaller and smaller after the after the last big one. Less and less eyeball left. <laughs> Wearing that thing down to the nub. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's call it a show. So that's our show for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. Join us again next week for the Niche Podcast. Bye. Okay, it's going. Uh, yeah, funny story. I got up yesterday morning, and you know, half half awake, kind of stumbled into the bathroom. I was just all of a sudden hit by the smell of, uh, you know, like, like bleach and scrubbing bubbles and Lysol. You know, all these cleaners. Like, huh? Clean in here. So I started looking around, like, huh, it looks clean in here. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, I called Kira in there because you know, my husband had already gone to work. And I said, Kira, why is the bathroom clean? And she goes, she goes, I cleaned it. And I said, why did you clean it? She, and she goes, because it needed cleaning. And so I'm standing there trying to figure this out because, you know, what 10-year-old does that? Right. And so then, then she says to me, she says, Mom, since you have that new iPad, can I have your old one? (laughs) 
Wow. <laughs> like, oh, that's why the bathroom's clean. Wow. Yeah. Those little minds. Yeah. That's awesome.